Unearthed Memphis, your Memphis history podcast with hosts Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. Hey everybody and welcome back to Unearthed Memphis. I'm Alan. And I'm Tara. And we hope you liked our halloween episodes. They were loads of fun to write because uh, it really is our favorite time of the year. Well, it's my favorite time of the year. It's, it's my close second to Christmas, maybe. Yeah, Christmas is my second favorite, I think, yeah. and mostly because it's my birthday time. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. And this year you will be, wait for it. Can I say it? I feel like it was rude to say it. Can I say it? Sure. She can be 40. <laughs> the travesty. <sighs> I don't really know how that could be. It's impossible. It's not really impossible. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's not really so bad. I do work for a dermatologist, so I'm pretty much refusing to age in the appearance situation. And uh, you're also only as old as you feel, right? And how old do you feel? About 90. Right. Generally, most right. days. <laughs> <laughs> um, but honestly, I'm looking forward to my birthday week. Well, good. I hope so. We're going to be able to do lots of fun things this weekend. We'll tell you about next episode. Yeah. Um, but we've been trying to make up for all the lost time during COVID by going and doing fun things. Yeah. Taking fun trips. Exactly. And if you follow our socials, because that's what the kids are calling them these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it actually right, kind of. I know. Right. Look, I'm almost forty. It's it's time. Um. Yeah, it kind of makes sense to call it that, you know, because uh, social media is, is more wordy than just the socials, mm. right? Right. Or- uh, there's only one less wordy, though. Right. <laughs> 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 well, if you do follow our socials, you'll see we took a long-awaited and much-deserved Disney and Universal Studios adventure. <laughs> the trip had been in the work for about two years because, well, you know, covid and it got pushed out by a, a year or a little more than a year. A little more than a year, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was an incredibly fun trip. And we spent one day at Universal, mostly mm-hmm. to see Harry Potter. Because uh, we're big old super nerd fans. Yep. Yeah. And I had been to Universal, but I only saw the early half of Harry Potter uh, the, f- the first time I went. And didn't ride any of the rides because of a terrible, terrible mistake. <laughs> um, so going back, it was really like going for the first time, honestly. Yeah. And my best friend, Sarah, who lives in Atlanta, we went years ago, but we had an incredible time. So this time getting to have the experience with someone who had never been fully immersed in it. Uh, it was really, it was really fun. Is there a Z in that word there? There, there, I, yes. <laughs> Immersed. <laughs> being at Harry Potter World and Universal was just as incredible as being at Harry Potter Studios outside of London, which, yes, we have also been to because we're really big fans. Yeah. And I'd say being at Universal is more like being in the movie versus being at the studios and seeing all the props and sets that were used in the movie. I agree. Yeah. Uh, at Universal, you get to go in all the shops, which are really just gift shops that are trying to make you spend all your money. Um, right. But you do get to feel like you're in the movies and doing all the things that they did. And similarly, uh, the rides make you feel like you're in the movies as well. Because from the time you get into the lines, you're really part of the adventure. Right. Um, you get to fly on a broom through the castle in a Quidditch match, and you get to escape from Gringotts on a flying dragon. <laughs> it was amazing. And you get to drink butterbeer. Oh, yeah, butterbeer. It's amazing. Lots of butterbeer. Lots of butterbeer. 
Harry Potter Studios was really cool, too, because it was like a giant behind the scenes of all the movies. Yeah, and I found it interesting that so many of the props were considerably smaller than I thought they would be. Right, like entire hallways and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. That's the magic of the movies, I guess. Uh, I guess plus, so. the majority of the characters were children, so things didn't have to be that big. But yeah. you're right, everything seemed like it was made on a smaller scale. But it was incredible nonetheless. And so if you ever find yourself in London, go to Harry Potter Studios. And don't worry, there are buses. Yes. A lot of them. And they will take you there and back again. Like the hobbits. <laughs> Unintentionally like the hobbits, yes. yes. <laughs> right, I have to tell you a little, a little side story about our Universal Adventure. So Harry Potter was, of course, amazing. Um, but the real treasure was the mummy ride mm-hmm. based on the, uh, the Brendan Fraser movie. And I'm going to tell you why. So, when Sarah and I went, I have this fantastic picture of our faces from that ride um, when we went back in the day. And, you know, they take a picture mid-ride and you have no idea what you're going to look like. So, when we got to the place where we could see the pictures, the shock on our faces was priceless. And I will post a picture because it is one of my favorites. (laughs) Um, So, when Alan and I went on it, I was so excited to see what our faces would look like. And mine, of course, even with the mask on, was ridiculous. You could totally tell. And Alan's was straight up a blank stare. (laughs) (laughs) We were facing the magical and angry reincarnation of a lovesick dead Egyptian who rains down fire and death. And Alan could literally not be bothered by his shenanigans. It was fantastic. Um, and I deeply regret not taking a picture of the picture because, you know, I, I can't bring myself to, to pay for those uh, pictures. They're astronomical. Um, but uh, I felt bad because the girl was just staring at me when we looked at the pictures. And uh, I just shouldn't have cared, but I did. And dang me being a good person. <laughs> that girl would not have cared if you had stolen the monitor. You're probably right. Um, Anyway. I can't help the fact that I don't emote above my eyes. I know. It was, it was glorious. I'm so sad. I even tried to get online, like, you know, when we came home and I was like, please be there somewhere. Please be there somewhere. Yeah, it wasn't there. It was not there. Um, but there were numerous days at Disney after that. And uh, it was as magical as they say it is. And I have been to Disney thrice and it was really wonderful getting to see Tara experience it for for the first time yeah I can't believe it's I I had never been um but yeah this was it was awesome and my my new favorite ride of course was the haunted mansion of course (laughs) of course uh and we ended up actually getting to ride it more than once but the first time I guess there was an issue because we got stuck hanging out with the hitchhiking ghost for about 10 minutes so (laughs) that was really cool they never got picked up they never did Nope, nope. We did some of the classic rides like It's a Small World, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, and Jungle Cruise, too. Yeah, and even as a grown-up, I loved every minute of those rides, no matter how cheesy they were. Um, But uh, there was a part in A Small World, It's a Small World, where the music gets a little darker, and for a second, you think the ride is going to take a turn for the worse, because you round this corner in your little boat, and I really felt like there was going to be dolls, like brandishing knives and other scary weaponry. (laughs) That doesn't happen. There's just excruciating happiness in that that ride. It doesn't, but I really felt for a split second uh, it might, and we were going to be suddenly transported into Bizarro Small World. (laughs) 
<laughs> it would have been a better ride. It probably would have been. <laughs> and for you Avatar and Star Wars fans, Flight of Passage and Pandora and Rise of the Resistance were both amazing rides. Mm-hmm. And we totally paid for the lightning pass so we didn't have to wait in line and it was well worth it. Yep. Uh, the amount of effort they put into those rides was phenomenal. Rise of the Resistance was like 18 minutes long and it was like you were in the movie. You, were, you felt like a character. Yeah, it was super cool. Um, and the, the blue milk was pretty fantastic, even if I didn't add the rum. Because it was like 9 a.m. The, the girl really wanted us to add the rum, too. She she was like, I, I won't judge you. Uh, no. Well, next time. Because there will definitely be a next time. Um, but probably not for a few years or so, because we got some other traveling to do. And it was expensive. It was expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so after nine days of Disneying, eating and drinking and traveling, we're pretty ready to be home. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's our Disney review. So I hope you guys liked it. (laughs) Um, but we got back home, dad moved back to Memphis and, uh, we got some movers and I will say this till I am blue in the face, hire movers. It is well worth the money and no one wants to help you. Totally, (laughs) totally worth the money. When you get past your twenties, nobody wants pizza and beer in, in, in exchange for hauling dressers and stuff. No, God, we're too old for that. Yeah, and then there was uh, Thanksgiving with my family and all the foods and a trip downtown to show my cousins some of the sights of Memphis. Yeah. Cousins I haven't seen in a while. Yeah, it and, was awesome. Uh, well, a while being a very long time, actually. Uh, by the way, Thanksgiving night downtown is a ghost town. It's the most bizarre thing we've ever seen. There was literally no one down there. Nobody. It was uh, weird. Yeah, we finally found dinner at Rum Boogie, and uh, it's a place I haven't been to in the last decade or so, and it was pretty good. The yeah. food was really good, actually considering that it was just a you know it's a a bar it's a bar that's been there for a really long time right um and then there was thanksgiving with my family and uh not sure if we've mentioned it before maybe we have anyway we have this tradition um that we dress up in costumes for thanksgiving dinner because my family likes to play dress up uh, whenever we can (laughs) and it was fantastic as always uh let's see what else um oh we went to the second crafts and drafts fair at crosstown yeah and Tara bought some beautiful handmade jewelry, and we bought a Memphis matte print that's gorgeous. It's like has like a gold inlay on it. Yeah, um, I got some beautiful new earrings made by, I hope I do not butcher her name, uh, Booth Sartain McGee, a local artist uh, with an impressive list of creations. Um, you should check out yeah. her website at boothsartain.com. Um, she's got jewelry, print work, decor, the list just goes on. It was really cool. And she even mentioned that she was on a TV show recently, which I wish I could remember the name of. Um, but it's pretty cool. Nonetheless, I think she did some decorating business. Um, and then I got this really cool honeycomb shaped necklace, uh, made by Kyra McNanny. I think it's McEnany. McEnany? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll go with that. Um, they have an Etsy shop, and I'm going to spell it for you. It is K-I-C-H-I-K-I-M-A-N-I.etsy.com. That is clearly Kichikamani. There you go. I'm bad with words. <laughs> <laughs> um, I almost didn't get it, but I, I went back because it was really pretty, and it's reversible. So it's a twofer, if you will. And at first, I didn't see it when we went back, and I was going to be really sad, but there it was. <laughs> the guy said a few people were interested in it, but, but uh, didn't get it, so we were, we lucked out. <laughs> but they wish they did, but it's all mine now, and I wear right. it all the time. <laughs> and the print we bought was from Lauren Estes at Estes Designs, and it has a pretty, pretty teal background with the Memphis street map in copper. 
Um, and it, it'll join the collection of our other Memphis artwork we have acquired. We're building a little Memphis section in our pod area. Yeah. Uh, we've actually got a decent, pretty sized collection going. We've got plans in the works for uh, the whole wall, basically, to be displayed with Memphis stuff. Yeah. Um, and in that booth, we actually met a coworker slash friend of a fellow Memphis podcaster, Sheena from Cemetery Row. Um, she does a lot of stuff with Elmwood as well. And, and we've never met, but I assume at some point we'll run into each other and, and meet. <laughs> yeah, she has a, a an Instagram profile where she uh, power washes the gravestones, yeah, which is really, really nice. It's and really it's cool. called So Once Was I, although it looks like it says Sunsiwasi. It does. So... <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, she has also some crime tours that she does at the at Elmwood that we need to take sometime soon. Yeah, I so. think they'll be really cool. Then maybe we can introduce ourselves and be like, "Hey, yeah, yeah, for finally, those folks." Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, two weekends ago, for the dozenth time or so, I think actually for me it's like seventeen or eighteen. Yeah, uh, we ran the St. <laughs> Jude race, and I, I used the term "run loosely" this time. Yes, <laughs> but we did raise about fifteen hundred dollars between the two of us, and we did get medals at the end. So you know experience. It was great. It was worth all the minor amounts of pain we endured. Definitely. Yeah. For anyone listening who might be from the outside outside of the Memphis area or is new to Memphis, St. Jude is a children's can- a cancer treatment and research hospital where no family is ever given a bill for their children to be treated uh, f- from housing to flights to anything, any, any sort things. of everything. Food. Yeah. And so every year we help raise money for the hospital and this happened to be the 20th anniversary for the race, which is pretty awesome to be able to participate in since we weren't able to last year. And at some point, St. Jude will get its own episode as well. Yeah, it's got a super cool history. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's that little $1,500 we raise is great, but it's a flash in the pan considering it It takes around $1.3 or $1.4 million a day to run that hospital. I think it's actually $2 million now. Is it $2 million? Yeah, uh, they wow. have. They do so, so much. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, and also that weekend, we ended up having a, a mini reunion with Robin, my indie marathon partner, and the glue that held our old running group together. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't say this to make her sad, but I'm totally going to shame her for the fact when she moved, we all kind of fell, fell apart. apart. We're um, all wayward souls now. We are. Um, she came in from Kansas City and we got to meet up twice, actually. And because of that, we got to see one of our other old running mates, Shawanda, too. And and she and I did a half in Indy and we crushed it. She's so amazing. Um, so it was great to have part of the old gang back together again, even for a, a short period of time. And later that night, we actually went and saw Jason Mraz and his percussionist, Toko Rivera, at the Cannon Center, too. And it was our first real concert since quarantining, and it was really good. It was, and it turns out this is actually the second time we've seen them perform together. No idea. Uh, the first time, yeah, it was three years ago in St. Louis, and neither one of us remember it happening. <laughs> we vaguely remember it now. But yeah, we remember other things from that night, just not the show. We have pictures from it. We do, yeah. um, and it, I'm sure it was great, because yeah. uh, they are awesome together, but yeah. it's literally gone from our memories. So yeah. um, anyway, it was like the first time uh, that I saw him, and it was incredible, and he's incredibly talented, and uh, also seems like a genuinely nice guy. Like yeah, you could have a beer with him. <laughs> all right, <laughs> all right, Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> I have to get you back on track with the Hamilton. I uh, know, I know. All right, well, there you have it. The end of November, the beginning of December. That is where we are right now. The Christmas tree is up. Holiday movies have been playing nonstop, and we are in full-on elf mode. Yes. But I guess we should get to the story. Probably so. 
So I thought we'd wrap up this season with our first two-parter. And uh, this story has been in the works for quite a while. Um, it's actually one of our first story ideas. And there was just so much info. It's it's taken a while to, to hash it all out. Yeah. Um, all right. So here goes. If you were to mention the word Titanic to a random stranger today and ask them to tell you what that word means to them, there's a very high chance that you would get one of the following responses. That Celine Dion song that was overplayed to death. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the quote, I'm the king of the world, Woo! especially if you're an Office fan. That's right. Or uh, Love Actually. Yeah. Well, or The Office, mainly. Yep. And more importantly. Sure. Uh, <laughs> the quote, paint me like one of your French girls. Ooh. <laughs> uh, the fact that there was totally room for Jack on that plank of wood and Rose basically caused his death. Very much. That is so true. <laughs> It was a full door. It was. Have you seen anyway. the meme that's like all, right, all the different ways that yes, you can like, that they could have cuddled around or, or like been on their laptops? Yep. On yep. the top of the thing. <laughs> they, I don't think they had laptops. Um, or the big boat that hit an iceberg and due to arrogance and poor planning, lots of dead folks. Yep. Which is, you know, our point really this time. Uh, the point is people would know that it had something to do with the deadliest maritime disaster that they are probably aware of. Well, little did they know that there was actually another water vessel tragedy that's even more deadly than the Titanic. On April 27, 1865, the SS Sultana floated north on the Mississippi River, loaded with almost 2,300 passengers, many of which were Union soldiers that were recently liberated from Confederate prison camps. At approximately 2 in the morning, the recklessly overloaded SS Sultana exploded just north of Memphis, Tennessee, becoming the worst maritime disaster in U.S. history. Uh, side note, uh, since I was curious and looked it up, the deadliest maritime disaster in world history was the wartime sinking of the German military transport ship, the Wilhelm Gustloff, during World War II by a Soviet sub, and that disaster had an estimated loss of around 9,400 people. Wow. Like 9,400. That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was interesting and really sad, too. Yeah. yeah. So on with the story. Um, the SS Sultana was a paddle steamer built in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it was built originally for Captain Preston Ludwig at a price of $60,000 and launched on January 3rd, 1863. Now, the name Sultana is derived from the original Arabic word for wife, mother, or sister of a sultan. And just as a little superstition side note, uh, this name was not exactly attached to good maritime fortune. Three other ships had been made before this one with the same name. And all three previous ships were destroyed in accidents. Mm. And this was not connected to a common builder or designer or anything of the sort. It was just merely a coincidence. The Sultana was one of the largest business steamers ever built for its time. It was 260 feet in length with a 42-foot beam, that's the width at, at its widest point, and had a, a hold that went seven feet deep. Its weight was registered at 1719. That is the weirdest way I could have said that. <laughs> it really is. 1,719 tons. Uh, the steamer held a regular route between New Orleans and St. Louis as a trade vessel. The steamer had a carry capacity of 1,000 tons, making it ideal for transporting trade cargo. In addition to the cargo area, it could accommodate 76 cabin passengers and 300 deck passengers. Uh, so that means the largest capacity for passenger transport with all safety measures in place would be 376 passengers. Uh, keep those numbers in mind. 376. Mm -hmm. 
At that time, however, Sultana only had two lifeboats and 76 life preservers, as it was only set up to carry cargo, not passengers. On the deck of the Sultana were four high-pressure tubular boilers measuring 18 feet in length and 46 inches in diameter. These boilers were smaller and lighter than the boilers found on conventional steamers, but were made to produce steam more efficiently. The Sultana's engines powered two water wheels that were each 34 feet in diameter, which were mounted on the sides of the steamer. The cabin of the steamer featured a long, narrow saloon lined on each side by a row of staterooms. And each stateroom was luxuriously furnished, and the saloon was stocked with fine china and glassware. The vast majority of the passengers aboard the Sultana on its last trip up the Mississippi were Union soldiers that had been captured in battle by the Confederacy. But as the war was coming to a close, they were now being paroled from the Cahaba, Alabama, and Andersonville, Georgia prison camps. Most of them had seen horrific carnage on the battlefield, but even still, they were ill-prepared for what they were about to experience. Most of the soldiers that were imprisoned in Cahaba and Andersonville were actually captured in the second half of 1864, meaning that most of them spent an entire year in those prison camps. Mm. Quite a few of these soldiers traveled on foot during an unseasonably cold winter between their capture and imprisonment, so they were actually malnourished, frostbitten, or otherwise extremely ill to exposure uh, before they even reached the prison camps. That sounds awful. There was an official prisoner exchange during the Civil War, which called for even man-to-man exchanges of all captured soldiers, and these soldiers could return to their units. The soldiers remaining after the even exchanges happened to be paroled, and they were not to take up arms again until they were formally exchanged. By the end of 1863, the Union leadership all but halted the existing prisoner exchange between the Union and Confederate armies. By 1864, no prisoners were being exchanged at all. Because of the cancellation of this exchange, the populations within the prison camps soared to entirely unmanageable numbers. For example, Cahapa ended up housing more than 3,000 prisoners by the end of the war, when it was set up to house about 500. And this overcrowding, combined with extremely unsanitary living conditions, tainted water supplies, flooding, which bred mosquitoes, fleas, and horrible bouts of dysentery, uh, malnourishment, and even violence gave most Civil War prison camps very high mortality rates, most of them between 12 and 15 percent. And these horrible conditions within the prison camps during the Civil War ended up claiming the lives of more than 26,000 Confederate soldiers and nearly 23,000 Union soldiers in total. A, so- uh, a soldier during the Civil War had better odds of survival fighting on the battlefield than he did as a prisoner of war. And the creation of this system of prison camps has been called one of the greatest tragedies of the Civil War. These prisons did not reflect the image of what is conjured now when we think of what a prison looks like. Most of these two prisons were completely open to the elements. Uh, Cahaba was a repurposed cotton warehouse with one wooden structure that provided only a basic shelter for a small percentage of the prisoners. Each prisoner at Cahaba only had about six square feet of space to himself. Cahaba's chief surgeon, R.M. Whitfield, reported, reported the physical layout of the prison consisted of a brick wall covered with a leaky roof with 1,600 feet of open space in its center, four open windows, and earth for the floor. Mm. Conditions were decidedly worse for a while in February of 1865 when torrential rains caused the nearby Alabama River to flood Cahaba's grounds. This basically took the inhabitable ground space away from nearly everyone in the prison camp. They were left to stand in freezing water. It was February, after all. 
while the Confederates in charge of the grounds floated around pr- the prison camp in boats. Nice. <laughs> Eventually, able prisoners were allowed to leave the camp to collect driftwood so they could stack it into platforms above the surface of the water. Of course, this didn't work for many of the men in prison there, so 700 men were taken to Selma, leaving 2,300 to tough it out in the flooded prison camp. Andersonville was merely a plot of land, and it had no structure of any kind for the prisoners, apart from the cloth tents used for housing. This 27-acre plot was surrounded by a 20-foot-high pine stockade, and around the main stockade were additional wooden fences, 16 feet and 12 feet in height. Within these walls lived as many as 33,000 prisoners, which, if we do some approximation, would give each man a little less than four square yards of living space. Which is tiny. It took me a minute to, to wrap my brain around that. Right. But that is tiny. Right. However, it wasn't even that much because of the uninhabitable areas containing swamp or disposed human waste. Because, you know, uh, apparently um, those kind of facilities were not that great either. Right. Um, medical care was slim when available. And when it was, there was nowhere to provide a sanitary environment for medical treatment and procedures. See disposed human waste above (laughs) for these prisoners the smallest cut splinter or sunburn could turn gangrenous and result in the amputation of the area or even death at andersonville some of the prisoners shared a theory that the people providing medical treatment were actually executioners in disguise when they had to inoculate a large group of men in 1864 for smallpox, the prisoners accused them of inoculating them with poison due to the large number of deaths and amputations from other illnesses such as scurvy and gangrene uh, that followed the vaccinations. So a quote from John Ransom, a prisoner in Andersonville. Here we have the very worst kind of water. Nothing could be worse or nastier than the stream drizzling its way through the camp and for the air to breathe. It is what arises from this foul place. On all four sides of us are walls and tall trees, and there is apparently no wind or breeze to blow away the stench, and we are obligated to breathe it and live in it. Dead bodies lay around all day in the boiling sun by the dozen, and even hundreds, and we must suffer and live in this atmosphere. It's too horrible for me to describe in fitting language. (sighs) Crime was also quite prevalent in the prison camps. The Confederacy couldn't spare trained soldiers to guard the prison camps, so often they were guarded by young boys or old men who were either too afraid or too apathetic about their guard duties or just not capable enough to actually venture into the stockade to maintain order. Uh, This left the prisoners mostly alone to defend themselves against crimes ranging from theft to assault and even murder. So basically it was Lord of the Flies. Basically. Like no rules, no order, just chaos. Um, And unfortunately when you put people in such vile conditions with no end in sight and you're just trying to survive, your your mental state starts to wear down. And I imagine that can just send you into a a downward spiral. It has to. Um, imagine being at war with potentially someone you know or related to, and then you're captured and sent to a prison camp where your captors could care less if you lived or died, and you're just trying to make it out alive, and there is clearly no good medical care. Um, just think about what your brain might be telling you to do or think. So I'm, I'm sure most of the people got to the point where they were in survival mode, and their brains just kind of shut out reason, and they were just willing to do whatever it took to make it to the next day. Right. Um... And, you know, you also have to think about the people they were in prison with were people who were on their side. Right. Like, and they weren't being held captive with the enemy. They were just, they were doing these things to their fellow man. So, 
I don't know. I can't imagine what they went through that left them in that place mentally. It it really did have to be a, a living nightmare. Yeah, it really did. It's awful. So as the Civil War began to come to a close, uh, the Confederate prison camps began to trade their prisoners for soldiers that had been captured by the Union forces. Beginning in late March of 1865, these prisoners were paroled and then traveled by way of train, steamer, or even on foot, and would eventually end up in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Uh, this was designated the, de- the designated holding point for all released prisoners from east of the Mississippi River while they waited to be shipped north for full release. This trip, which lasted for some of them a full month, mm. was extremely difficult, uh, especially for those on foot. A soldier from the Indi- Indiana Infantry, upon witnessing a large group of paroled prisoners traveling by foot, recounted the scene. Coming like cattle across an open field were scores of men who were nothing but skin and bones, some hobbling as best they could, and others being helped by stronger comrades. Every gaunt face with its staring eyes told the story of suffering and privation that they had gone through, and the protruding bones showed through their scanty, tattered garments. One might have thought that the grave and the sea had given up their dead. Mm -mm. Once in Vicksburg, the prisoners were housed at Camp Fisk, also known as Four Four Mile Camp and they were to await their transfer by steamer and train to Camp Chase near Columbus, Ohio, where they would receive their official release and discharge from the Army. While many of the soldiers were at Camp Fisk, events were unfolding near Appomattox, Virginia, that would bring about the end of the Civil War. All right, so finally, the Sultana itself comes into the story. Captain James Cass Mason, who was piloting the steamer on its fateful trip down the Mississippi River, had essentially sunk everything he owned into his investment in the Sultana. And because of this, Mason was likely driven by more than just the usual entrepreneurial desire for profits. So let's provide a little background on this J. Cass Mason fellow, since he was such a gem. In March of 1864, Preston Lodwick, the man for whom the Sultana was built, sold the steamer to three investors for $80,000. So he got a $20,000 profit on that steamer that had already been in use for a year. Good job, Preston. So while Mr. Lodwick was making it rain from the sale of the steamer, J. Cass Mason, now three-eighths owner of the Sultana, was named its captain and master because at only 34 years old, he was already skilled in navigating the Mississippi River. Mason had already been owner and operator of a few more steamers, too. He lost the command of one of his vessels, the Rowena. Ravenclaw. (laughs) Probably not. But maybe. Who knows? Maybe. (laughs) Who knows? What was going on in the wizarding world back then? Uh, The Rowena, when it was seized by the U.S. Navy. On board the Rowena, with Mason at the helm, officers found 200 ounces of quinine that was bound for the Confederate-controlled city of Tiptonville, Tennessee, along with 3,000 pairs of rebel uniform pants. Mm Mm-hmm. Quinine. Yeah. It's a brutal substance. And pants. Make your eye not twitch. <laughs> uh, the contraband and the steamer were seized and put to use by the Navy. Mason had heard in advance of his landing in Vicksburg that the U.S. military was offering $5 per enlisted man and $10 per officer for transporting of prisoners at that time. This type of return on investment was desperately needed by Mason as he was in financial straits. He had decided that he would do whatever he could to ensure that the Sultana would be carrying a large number of prisoners when it left the Vicksburg docks to head north. 
And when Captain Mason landed in Vicksburg on its normal run downriver to New Orleans, about three days before the trip north, he met with Colonel Reuben B. Hatch to try and secure a guarantee of a full load of prisoners upon his return north. So let's set the stage a bit for this character, who played a large part in contributing to the disaster on the Sultana. Hatch, who had begun his military service in 1861 at the age of 41, had been charged with defrauding the government during his time as a quartermaster in Cairo, Illinois. He would purchase large amounts of lumber from a Chicago-area lumber dealer on behalf of the government at the approved rate, but demanded that the dealers fill out the receipts at a higher rate. He would then pay the dealers at the lower rate and distribute the remaining funds among himself and two other men. Unfortunately for him, these lumber dealers had more integrity than he assumed, and they would uh, turn him in. During the fraudulent operations, he was also keeping a public and private set of books. This private set of books, after his attempt to discard them into the Ohio River, washed onto the bank and were discovered. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> he was immediately arrested for his fraudulent dealings against the U.S. government. However, somehow... After much back and forth on the reliability and validity of the proof against him, a few letters vouching for his integrity and innocence made their way to Abraham Lincoln from ranking military officials. And these were enough to convince Lincoln to assemble a civilian commission to review the evidence against Hatch and decide on his innocence or guilt. Although the evidence was strong, the commission cleared him of all guilt and he was returned to active duty shortly thereafter. So that sets the tone for the unsavory dealings happening while the Sultana was being boarded for the last time. So when the Sultana left New Orleans for the last time, Mason's chief engineer, Nathan Wintringer, I believe, uh, had received reports that the boilers on the Sultana had been patched and repaired over their, on, on their two previous trips south. When Wintringer noticed steam escaping from a crack in the middle larboard boiler, Ooh, yeah. larboard boiler, say that five times fast, <laughs> Uh, larboard is an older term meaning the port or left side of the boat. I'm glad they changed that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> That's a silly word. Uh, he was insistent that no progress be made past Vicksburg unless the ne necessary repairs had been completed. De uh, they even traveled the rest of the way to Vicksburg at a lower speed so as to not put strain on the al already questionable boilers. That's another one. Questionable boilers. <laughs> uh, while the Sultana was making its way slowly up the river towards Vicksburg... General Charles Dana, one of the people that assisted in Hatch being released after defrauding the government, as mentioned earlier, mm. uh, was ordering Captain Frederick Speed to make sure that 1,000 soldiers were loaded onto each steamer that was docking at Vicksburg. Keep in mind that I early mentioned, earlier mentioned that the Sultana could only comfortably, safely, or legally carry a maximum of 376 passengers. The Sultana finally docked in Vicksburg at 8.45 a.m. on April 23rd. At this point, the Sultana's engineer, Nathan Wintringer, brought out a local boiler maker, R.G. Taylor, to examine and repair the boilers on the steamer and refused to disembark again until the repairs were complete. He found a bulge in the middle larboard boiler <laughs> Lord, uh, and questioned why the repairs had not been performed while they were docked in New Orleans. Taylor was then instructed to repair the bulging seam quickly and make the steamer ready to leave as quickly as possible. Taylor made it known that two sheets needed to be replaced on the boiler to prevent further damage and refused to have anything to do with the Sultana unless he could perform the proper repair work. 
Wintringer, uh, Wintringer convinced Taylor to only patch the boiler on the back of Mason's promise that he would have the full extent of repair done to the boiler once the steamer docked in St. Louis. And once the patch job was complete, Taylor told Mason and Wintringer that he did not deem the Sultana ready for travel and told them that the boilers appeared to have been burned on the previous leg of the trip due to insufficient water supply. Because the preparations for loading prisoners had not yet been completed due to the short time in between boats, it was ordered by Captain Speed that no prisoners were to board the Sultana. Uh, In response to this, Mason visited Hatch at his boarding house in Vicksburg to convince him to provide a full load of prisoners on board the Sultana. After expressing his distaste at the speed in which Captain Speed was (laughs) making preparations for the prisoners to board, negotiations for loading the Sultana began. After much back and forth, a meeting took place between Hatch, Mason, Speed, and, after just arriving in Vicksburg, Captain George Williams. At the end of this meeting... Uh, Williams had determined that no further preparations were necessary. They would just bypass the distribution of bedrolls and essentials that they had been preparing for the newly paroled prisoners. Yeah, because they don't need any any they don't amenities. Need provisions? Right. Why? And that the Sultana would be boarded the following morning with all prisoners that remained in Vicksburg. This decision was based on an estimate that there were 1,300 to 1,400 prisoners remaining in Vicksburg. Even though they could only safely have 376 people. Right. Why don't you just put 1,400 more on top of yeah, that? Yeah, why not? Why not? Um, so there are other steamers coming, uh, heading in and out of Vicksburg during this time. One of them, named the Lady Gay, was veritably empty at the time the Sultana was being boarded, uh, but was sent along upriver after a telegram from Speed. He had been informed that the Lady Gay, a steamer from the same line, was prepared to take half the men slotted for the Sultana. But based on the estimate that only 1,400 prisoners were waiting to board, he stood firm with his command that every one of them was to be loaded aboard the Sultana. And on that note, we're going to end this part of the story. Mm, I love a good cliffhanger. <laughs> it's, it's not a good cliffhanger. But, it's not but, a good cliffhanger. It's, it's a stopping point. Exactly. Uh, so stay tuned for the final part of this story coming at you in a couple of weeks. Or maybe sooner, depending on how things go. We have a trip in the middle there, so maybe, maybe not. Look Bef- forward in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. Before the end of the year. Yes. Yes. All right. Thanks again for listening to the story we unearth. And yeah. as always, uh, don't forget to listen to our next episode on your favorite podcast listening app. And also, if you get the chance, we'd love for you to like and subscribe, leave us a review, share us on the socials. That's what they say now, right? That's what they say. (laughs) (laughs) Granny. Check out our website at unearthmemphis.com, Instagram at unearthmemphis, Facebook at facebook.com slash unearth901, Twitter at unearth901, or drop us an email at unearthmemphis at gmail.com. We would love to hear from all of you. All of you. All of you. Um, One of us. Uh, (laughs) Questions, comments, corrections, or just chatter. You know, it's appreciated and enjoyed. You can tell us how... Not funny, I am. <laughs> or but. both of us. <laughs> but I like it. Yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, this is our disclaimer. We are not historians. We are simply two people who are interested in Memphis history. We have done research and are trying to provide accurate history as best we can. There is a possibility some of these statements are incorrect, but we have tried to verify all the info so that we are not putting out any untrue info. To the best of our knowledge, what we are saying is correct, but let us know if you have anything to add or correct. In the show notes, you'll find links to the articles we used and book titles, etc. to gather our information. Yay. There are a lot of really cool local books um, 
about the Sultana. Yeah, there's a few, yeah. And we'll have those listed below. Also, um, little side note, there is a movie that Sean Astin did uh, about the Sultana. Post, post Sam Gamgee days. That's right. Um, but there was a premiere in Memphis at the Paradiso. And my sister and my niece Lexi did not alert me to this fact, even though I love Sean Astin and Goonies forever. Uh, they didn't tell me, and they went to this premiere and they met Sean Astin. <laughs> and I Jerks. Was very taken aback by that fact. Jerks. Yes. I still love them, but still, they got to meet Sean Astin. Anyway, you'll be okay. It's a good film. You should watch it. You should read some of these books that we list. Anyway, that is our story. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Unearthed Memphis is written, produced, and engineered by Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. The music was written, performed, and recorded by Donnie Wayne Smith and Alan Compton. 